I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT podcast. This week's episode is all about IoT and food safety and timing. Timing is critical whether you're telling a good joke, starting a company, or leading a social movement. And very often that timing is a function of converging forces. And that really is what we're seeing with the adoption of Internet of Things technology as a way of streamlining the compliance with a federal regulation that's being enforced by the Food and Drug Administration. So uh, there's a lot uh, to learn and very Fortunately, we've got the architect of the FISMA 204 regulation with us, Frank Yanis. He's got an amazing career. We'll be talking about it, but Walmart, Disney, uh, Deputy Undersecretary of the FDA. When I was interviewing him, it felt a bit like that same feeling that you have if you've ever listened to music, you have a favorite artist, a favorite album. And then through some miracle, you get to meet them. That's kind of how I felt today, uh, meeting with Frank. I've spent a lot of time digging into FISMA 204 because I think it is so important to the adoption of Internet of Things technology uh, at a scale that's never been achieved before with a set of benefits that have never been realized before. So I hope you enjoy this extensive conversation with him. We really cover a lot of bases it should be very educational as well as fun. The Mr. Beacon Ambient IoT Podcast is sponsored by Williot, bringing intelligence to every single thing. Frank, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure and uh, an honor to, to have you on our show. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be spending a little bit of time with you, Steve. I think some people may kind of scratch their head a little bit about why are we talking about food safety with the guy that's the architect of the most uh, significant uh, uh, food safety regulation uh, that the United States has seen. Why, why have that other than it's a chance to get, have, uh, have, have you on the show? Uh, but um, I think it's worth just saying a few things about that. And we'll, we'll actually come back to it in a little bit in more depth. But um, you know, technology doesn't work in a vacuum, um, uh, and there's some big problems there. And uh, you know, meaningful application occurs when when you have a big problem and you have a new technology. And very often, and I think 
IoT at times has been a technology that has been looking for a problem. Uh, and food safety, I think, is um, you know uh, a great fit. And for entrepreneurs, we have a lot of solution designers and entrepreneurs who uh, watch the show. Um, I encourage people to think about food safety uh, and the power of connecting every single thing to, to the cloud, to the web, to uh, AI, and what we can do. And uh, Frank, I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that before we pitch in. Well, yeah, thanks, Stephen. You know, I, um, you know, to me, this isn't too foreign. Uh, why would you have uh, somebody that just spent the last four and a half years in federal service working to try to advance the safety of food for the public, not only here in the United States, but across the globe? And uh, uh, the role of technology is critical. Uh, you know, when I was in federal service, I thought the way we're going to make progress is with change. Uh, simply put, if we don't change the way we're doing things, we won't make progress. We won't make progress on being able to feed 9 billion people. We won't make progress on reducing food waste. We won't reduce the burden of foodborne illness and keep people uh, safe and improve the quality of lives. And uh, I've often thought that it has to involve technology. Now, I've always said, Steve, it's got to be people-led, smart men and women, creative, designing, how do we do things better. It has to be science-based and rules-based, and that's what I did at FDA with FISMA, and we're going to talk a little bit about Section 204, the food traceability rule in particular. But increasingly, it's going to be technology-enabled, and so I think you're right on. But I've always said it's never really, for me, as a public health guy, about the technology per se. It's about the public health problem that we're trying to solve. And hopefully, I'll share with you that there's some big challenges ahead that we have to solve. Now, uh, if there's the right technology to address them, uh, we should leverage them. And uh, that's why I'm a big fan of the work that Williet is doing and uh, IoT in general, uh, our ability to create a smarter food system and even change the compliance paradigm from the way we've done it, let's say using the 20th century paradigm. So uh, I think you're right on. I believe that uh, what you did in setting the Food Safety Modernization Act, uh, Section 204 rule, the new rule uh, into motion is actually going to be a catalyst, not just for internet ambient, internet of things technology, the subject of this podcast and the, the purpose for the company that uh, pays me for my day job. Um, but I think it has the potential to really revolutionize food supply chains, not just from the point of view of food safety, but to do a better job with uh, uh, omnichannel, to have a better experience, to reduce waste, to uh, uh, make it a more enjoyable experience to uh, to uh, understand more about where our food comes from, but you know that's all a big lift, and so I think it takes a a mandatory piece of legislation that kind of causes people to raise their game. Yeah. So how are we going to cover this? There's a lot to talk about. I thought we should start off with you um, uh, just doing a recap on what is FISMA uh, and and Section 204. We we had a, a another podcast about a year ago. Uh, with Ed Tracy from the International Fresh Produce Association. Uh, but I think you're going to have a, a, a slightly different uh, take on it, obviously, as the, uh, the architect of that, uh, of that rule. Um, then I'd like to talk with you about uh, ambient IoT, which is a term that a lot of people are not familiar with, but they're going to become increasingly familiar with it as uh, it becomes part of 5G and the Wi-Fi standards. It's all, already... Uh, uh, built on top of Bluetooth. But let's talk about that. And then I'd like to finish off with kind of a chronological, how did we get here? Where are we today in the application of the rule? 
and let's be, you know, candid and yep. you know, I know you will be, you always are. And, and then I'm, I think we'll end up with a, which something which I think will really be interesting for people, which is your prediction of how it's going to pan out. You have now stepped back from creating the, the rule and I think you're pretty clear-eyed. You're working with uh, um, a number of, uh, of of your clients in your consulting practice, and uh, I think you are probably the best person in the world to give us a perspective on where it's going. So let's do that. But the other thing I need to do just before we kick off is to um, just you know say a couple of words on the fact that you've joined um, uh, William. Uh, Willie Otters, are, as a strategic advisor, you're, you're offering your uh, considerable advice and uh, coaching us on what we need to do. And I want to thank you for that. And I think um, you know, it's a great opportunity uh, for us, but I really think it's a great opportunity for the whole ecosystem to embrace a new technology that can not just help them with compliance, but you know all those other things that we touched on. So thank you for doing that. My pleasure. No, it's uh, it it was a it's an honor and it was an easy yes, Steve. Uh, I've been working on this idea of uh, greater food traceability and more importantly, food transparency on the food system my entire career. And we'll talk a little bit about my history and leading some pretty big initiatives in the private sector, then going to FDA and as you said, being the architect of FDA's new food traceability rule, being really a strong force behind getting it done. We'll talk a little bit about why that was done. But since I've left federal service, you know, I have everybody that's working on food traceability contacting me, I can say in humility. And, uh, you know, I haven't said yes uh, to anyone because uh, I'm watching the landscape, but uh, Ambient IoT is going to play such a critical role. And I think it's a good bet um, that this is one of the solutions uh, that has the potential to be a game changer to not only help us track and trace foods, but more importantly, we'll emphasize this a couple of times today, is go beyond tracking and tracing to track, trace, and monitor. And so that's a really important concept. And so, yeah, real honor and uh, glad to be part of the Williot team. Just let's get into that. Track, trace versus monitor. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, well, you know, tracking and tracing or traceability, generally people presume you just need to be able to trace a food through its origin. We live in a very complicated society with a very large, impressive, and powerful food system. But the food system is very decentralized and distributed. You know, we often talk about food chain. I wrestle with that because everybody always talks about a food chain. I see it in written form, but it's really a food system, an interconnected and distributed food system. And increasingly, what we need to do is create greater visibility because there's so much anonymity in the food system. We really don't know what products were produced where, how they were produced. Big manufacturers may not even know the ingredients that are in their product really in terms of where they came from. They can declare them. And, uh, you know, the rule that we're going to talk about is presumably a food traceability rule. It's about being able to connect the dots and know where the food originated from, how it traveled, whether it was from a farm to a processing facility to a distribution center, eventually to retail stores or food service locations, maybe ultimately to home. That's traceability, tracking and tracing. And while that's good, it's foundational, I think, to what ambient IoT can do. It means not only can we track and trace the food, but we can know more about the food by leveraging things like IoT pixels. And so using sensor technology and ambient IoT, we can now know not only where the food came from, 
but important attributes about how it was maintained, how it was distributed, even how it was produced. And that's where I think the real power in this foundational food traceability rule is going beyond just knowing where it came from, but the how it was produced. That's really helpful. Um, so we've talked about FISMA or the Food Safety Modernization Act, and we've also talked about Section 204. We'll get into you know, some of the key buzzwords, the concepts that people really need to know in order to uh, get their head around it. But let's start off with what is the relationship between the Food Safety Modernization Act, which presumably is legislation, and this rule, this new rule? Yeah. Yeah, so for your audience uh, that hasn't been following food safety modernization for the past decade and a half, you know, in 2011, after a series of food safety scares here in the United States, we had the melamine incident in pet food where pets were dying here in the United States due to uh, melamine and pet food that caused these illnesses and deaths. Uh, we had a spinach scare in 2006. 2009, we had the Peanut Corporation of America's large outbreak, I think 700 plus uh, cases of salmonellosis. So there were some big food safety scares in the United States at that time. And uh, Congress uh, came together in a bipartisan fashion and said, we need to modernize our food safety laws. Uh, and they passed something called the Food Safety Modernization Act. It was signed in January of 2011 by President Obama. And it was the most sweeping reform to our nation's food laws in over 100 years. It was pretty broad, Steve. It had a bunch of rules in there that uh, FDA had to write and industry had to comply with, such as preventative controls, making sure that all manufacturers were taking their due diligence, identifying the hazards, and implementing controls to manage them. Uh, there was one rule called the produce safety rule. A lot of the illnesses that occur in the U.S. are produce-related. If you look at what we call foodborne attribution studies, well, we want Americans to eat more produce. Unfortunately, when the outbreaks do occur, oftentimes they're produce-related, not always. Uh, we had uh, the intentional adulteration rule, you know, living in a new day after 9-11, uh, not only trying to protect foods from naturally occurring uh, contaminants, but from intentional bad actors that want to do harm. So there was a suite of seven foundational rules, but there was always one rule that was part of FISMA called Section 204. And it was called uh, additional record keeping for certain foods. People often refer to them as high-risk foods, but the rule as written was such certain foods and additional record keeping. It always meant traceability. And so Congress had given FDA a mandate that they had to write a food traceability rule which we referred to as Section 204. And so when I joined federal service, and maybe a little bit later, we'll get into how did we get here? How did, how did we get to the point that FISMA was passed in 2011 and we didn't get the food traceability rule until 2022? I'd like to tell you that story. But um, that's what it is. It's about food traceability. And um, that's how Section 204 came about. Congress gave, uh, you know, FDA and food producers across the land of FDA-regulated foods, which is about 80% of the food system, a mandate to say, we have to do better at tracking and tracing certain foods. And the reason was, up until that time, we were operating under the old paradigm of the Bioterrorism Preparedness Act that said, one step up, one step back traceability. But it didn't tell you how you had to do that. It was only one step up, one step back. And so uh, it always left me a little bit unfulfilled one step up, one step back. What does that mean? What are the data attributes that you have to 
capture. And so um, I'm grateful that Congress wanted FDA to write this rule. Very good. So the, the rule gets a lot more um, specific. Um, so let's kind of dissect that so that everyone feels comfortable that they know um, uh, what we're talking about uh, for the rest of the, the uh, discussion. So what are the foods that are covered? Let's start there. Yeah. Well, Steve, let me just back up if I can real quickly, and uh, I'll be succinct. I, I really like to say why. You know, why okay. Why the rule? Um, and the why always informs what we do, and it's really important. I told you there were some big scares. That gave us FSMA, but why food traceability? Oh. And uh, I like to say, you know, in my career, just about every food safety crisis that I've ever worked on, uh, lack of traceability has been an Achilles heel in our ability to address it. And I actually say today's food system is pretty impressive. Can it be made better? Yes, Steve, it can, and it needs to be. Uh, but when you think about being able to go into a grocery store, even after the pandemic, and find 50, 60,000 food SKUs, different foods available for a fraction of your hard-earned dollar. Now, granted, we're seeing some inflationary pressure, and we should be concerned about that. It's pretty impressive. But the food system, in my view, after work 30 years on this on a large scale, has an Achilles heel. And the Achilles heel is a lack of traceability and transparency, just too much opaqueness. Mm -hmm. And the examples that I use is in 2006, a large spinach outbreak in the United States, FDA and CDC saying consumers, we know people are becoming sick with a harmful organism called E. coli 157H7. We know through interviews, epidemiological surveys, that most of the people becoming ill have consumed bag spinach. We just don't know where the bag spinach came from. Mm -hmm. And they advised all consumers nationwide to not eat bag spinach. Uh, I don't know if you remember, if you were in the States at that time in 2006, bag spinach everywhere being taken off the menu, restaurants, food I do service, remember it. grocery store. That industry was devastated. The spinach industry will tell you it took them about seven years to recover from those losses. But when FDA did the trace back, because we didn't have good traceability requirements, it took them two weeks to trace that spinach back to source. And when it was all said and done, it was one spinach producer, one day's production, one lot number. That's what a lack of food traceability will do. It could potentially devastate an entire industry. You're all guilty until proven innocent. And if you don't pull it rapidly enough, it could cause a lot of illnesses, right? And so that's why public health agencies react like that. If you fast forward to the year 2018, in November, when I joined FDA, literally as I was joining, we were having a romaine outbreak. Same story, 2006, fast forward to 2018, same incident, not much progress, you know, in all of those years over a decade. Or 2009, when I was at Walmart PCA, it was a company that produced about two to 3% of the peanut paste in our country. Uh, recalls happened. Steve, I can remember sitting at Walmart home office and getting contacted by big brands that you would recognize and saying, we got to do a recall because we found out our peanut butter crackers or whatever they made contained PCA as an ingredient. And guess what, Steve? These recalls were coming in three months after the original PCA recall was identified. Lack of traceability, unacceptable in the 21st century that companies would take three months to tell you that they had PCA, peanut paste in their product. And so this lack of traceability is serious. I mean, it can cause people to be ill because you can't pull contaminated product fast enough. And if you do these overabundant and overcautious food advisories, 
you know, it destroys the livelihoods of food producers that are unaffected. So it's really, really important. So um, we went on to write the rule. And I want to tell you, when you hear the food traceability rule, section 204, I'm going to try to break it down so you understand what it what it says. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congress said, we want you to require this additional record keeping for certain foods. Remember I said certain foods. That meant they didn't say all foods. I think one day we're going to see all foods have these type of capabilities, but for now it was certain foods. And for FDA, what we did is we went through and identified the types of foods that are frequently implicated in foodborne illnesses. We created a risk ranking model based on criteria that Congress gave us, and it's available on FDA's website, Uh, but it was based on the frequency of illnesses, how much they cost society, whether producers have controls that can eliminate the hazard. Um, And we created a list of foods, and it's pretty broad. Uh, I haven't calculated specifically how many SKUs or what percentage of the grocery store it'll entail, but it's going to be a very large section. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're obviously all of the fresh fruits and vegetables that are cut, obviously, because once they're cut, they can support microbial growth. Uh, fresh leafy greens, uh, fish products are on there, soft cheeses, um, some of the Nut butters like peanut butter or almond butter that have been implicated in illnesses, fresh herbs. You can go out to the FDA website and you can find the list of what we call the food traceability list or food traceability foods. It's going to be a a lion's share of food products in your grocery store. Mm -hmm. Now, some retailers are telling me it's too hard to discriminate which foods will require traceability and which won't. And so I think they're going to default to requiring this uh, for more foods than not. But there's a list of types of foods. So if you're listening and you're in the food business or you're interested in providing technology solutions for food traceability, get familiar with the foods that are on the list. Um, this two other or, or three other important concepts that the rule states, Steve, are we define what we called key day elements and critical tracking events. KDEs and CTs. And you heard me say I was a little bit unfulfilled with traceability legislation in some parts of the world and even here in the U.S. with the Biotism Preparedness Act that said one step up and one step back traceability. Well, you're a data and and, and tech guy, right? That's generic. I mean, what do you do with that? And so Mm -hmm. we at FDA tried to write the rule with what I call a 21st century lens that said, really, to be able to do this, you you need standards, data standards. And so based on some pilots that we had done earlier, we said we need to really start rallying this large distributed food system around this concept of critical tracking events and key data elements. Critical tracking events is where should these records be captured and kept, right? So um, at production, if you ship a food, you ought to keep a record of what you shipped. Um, if you're receiving the food, if the food gets transformed in some type of way, those are uh critical tracking events. And the key data limits, what are the type of data attributes that you need to keep? Location, obviously, quantity of food, type of food. Um, So it's important to get familiar with these key data elements and critical tracking events. And at FDA, we try to give examples of what they are for the different nodes in the food continuum, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also then went further to state that we want foods to have a food traceability lock code. And we want that lock code to be maintained throughout the food continuum. Because one of the things we learned, Steve, is that people were really enamored with lock codes of batch numbers, and they were, at different points of the food system, even if the food wasn't changed or transformed, 
somebody wanted to give it its own lot code or its own lot number. So you could have in the life cycle of a food product, five different lot numbers that were totally unnecessary. And so we've come up with this concept of the food traceability lot code to try to keep consistency there. And where does that lot code start? How how early in the life of the lettuce the early. Stop. So if, if you're going to do a bag of lettuce, that's where you're going to give it a food traceability lock code, unless that product gets changed. And in some instances, you'll have a food product on the food traceability list that will travel through the food continuum and then make its way into another food product. So when it makes its way into another food product, uh, that product, unless there was a kill step for that food that's on the food traceability, will require continued food traceability and there'd be a new lot, food traceable lot assigned at that point. But the the situations or examples where there are lot codes assigned where they're not totally unnecessary because the food hasn't been changed, it's mainly a change in ownership, uh, there's no need to reassign a lot code in those instances. So in the industry, we like to talk about farm to fork. Yes. Does this really span farm to fork? Can I go from a field to something that's in someone's home or does it stop at the store? It's it's a it's a great question because, you know, in the course of my career, I've seen in these food safety scares, there's always been a lot of finger pointing as we were working to try to improve food traceability. You know, the growers would like to point further downstream and say it's the retailers that don't do food traceability. The retailers would, because I was a retailer, would always point the finger and say those farmers need to do a better job. Um, the way we wrote the rule is we are requiring food traceability through point of service, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's a retail store, a uh, restaurant, or food service establishment. That's a big deal, Steve, because the reality is I'm not into pointing fingers, but I have seen in federal service, I oversaw FDA's uh, foodborne outbreak response team. The real challenge has always been, uh, what does the consumer buy? We know there's ill consumers, but it's hard to make a connection with what which, with the food they purchased because at the retail level, they generally didn't have traceability to what went in their store. Yeah. They have traceability of what in, went into the DC, but then you've always lost traceability by and large, almost always, with what goes to a restaurant, what goes to a store. And so the rule intentionally, we wrote it, you need traceability through point of sale. Now to the fork, I don't know to the consumer's home, but increasingly I think that's likely as we're moving to this digital age, right? Where we now mm-hmm. know what people are buying whether it's because they're doing orders online. So we know they purchased, let's say, a bag of salad because they placed the order online and now they pick it up at the store. Or a lot of retailers have loyalty cards that can identify what they purchased. And so right now we're going to at least get to the store level, which is a good start. Uh, But I think increasingly we're going to be able to make those connections to what consumers purchases. And I saw that in my career at Walmart, Steve, you know, when there were recalls related to fresh leafy greens, when I first started at Walmart, there was no way we could notify a customer because Walmart didn't have loyalty cards. We could do it at Sam's Club because we had membership cards. So we knew what they purchased. But by the time I left, so many people were purchasing online and picking up at the store. By purchasing online, you know, we could contact millions of customers where three years earlier, I couldn't contact a single one. That transformation occurred at the period of just two or three years. So, so I think this is the, who gets to see the data is my my next question. So this is potentially, I mean, it's certainly very interesting data for many many reasons. Consumers think increasingly want to know 
where did my food come from? And, uh, you know, obviously, first, is it safe? Uh, but then, you know, was this uh, produced under what conditions were the workers working? Uh, is it a, a farm that is uh, using a lot of inputs or is it a regenerative farm where it's actually pulling the carbon out of the atmosphere? It seems like this, again, is kind of the first thread at giving people that visibility. But going back to the food safety, because 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 that's what the, the rule is uh, focused on, uh, is this something that... Uh, the FDA uh, gets the information. How do they get the information? And and what about consumers? Yes. Yeah, so the way the rule is written is if there's an investigation and FDA asks you, you're going to have to submit uh, traceability records to them in electronic form very rapidly. So FDA will have access to help them conduct outbreak investigations and uh, determine what was the product that's causing illnesses, try to remove it from the market as soon as possible to protect other people from becoming sick. Not only that, going a little bit further, Steve, and then able to do a better root cause investigation on why it happened in the first place and try to prevent reoccurrences, which is an important testament to food traceability. It's not only pulling product off the market, but it's learning so that we can prevent these things from happening again. Um, there's nothing in the regulation or the rule that requires that information to be shared with the public, but I could tell you the FDA's policy is uh, when they're involved in an outbreak investigation and they determine that a food product might cause harm, uh, their their desire to be transparent with the public is they 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 mentioned that and we'll go out with a consumer advisory and tell consumers to avoid certain foods or certain lot numbers if we have that type of specificity. What's going to happen as you know we start getting better compliance with this rule itself is that those advisories will become more focused, more precise, as opposed to avoid all romaine lettuce. We could say avoid romaine lettuce from this farm with mm-hmm. these used by dates on it. And then eventually, as we start doing more of these digital connections, I think we'll see a day and age, Steve, where consumers might hear something on the news, might not really catch that it was a particular brand or lot number. They'll be able to go into their cupboard at home and scan a product and know whether it's been implicated in a recall or outbreak. And then to your point further on, although it's not the rule itself, but you touched on this and I think it's worth mentioning, uh, I do think consumers are changing. The consumer is the key in the 21st century. It's the data age. And increasingly, they're tipping the balance of power. You know, when I was growing up in the profession, we assumed regulators had this great authority, but now You almost have to have a social license to do anything that you want to do with food. If you're a farmer, you know, do I have a social license to use this type of practice? Do I have a social license to use gene-edited crops? Do I I have a social license to use these type of fertilizers? But today, the way that information is provided to consumers is generally with labels. And as we start creating this digital footprint and these digital connections, We'll be able to provide information to the consumer so it's not just something that's on a label, but they can verify if, in fact, uh, it, the claim is really actual. Here's a perfect example for your listeners. I don't know how many purchase organic foods. I'm not asking you if you do or don't, Steve, but do you know there's more organic food sold in the world than is produced in the world? Um, it, that's, that's, that's disturbing. <laughs> it's disturbing, but you know. People could put a label of organic on there, but in the yes. future, I think we'll be able to do these verification procedures a little bit better. No, I was in a, 
I do tend to buy organic food. Uh, I feel like I've just pigeonholed myself. Uh, but um, <laughs> there's an amazing. Uh, actually, um, recently I've started going to to to, to Walmart. Um, uh, but uh, uh, for for grocery for for this kind of organic food, then there's a local supermarket. There's like I think five five of them in San Diego. They're called Jimbo's, and they actually say. These sweet potatoes came from a farm 37 miles from this store, and they give you the name of the farm. Okay. And that level of connection is worth a lot. And I can tell you, um, it's not the place you go for, uh, for, for, for budget um, sweet potatoes. Right. But when you get that, that's merchandising, and it's a story, and it's, it makes you feel like you're getting real value for money, you're supporting local uh, farms which kind of feels good uh, probably less fuel required to get it from the farm to to where you are so i think telling the story of the food and that's why i'm excited about ambient iot it enables that story to the the the, the threads of the story to be gathered in a very automated way without having to hire a ton of people or right. like millions of dollars of infrastructure it's like commodity radios. It's the uh, it's the same radios that you are using in your phone and your Wi-Fi access points. And uh, um, so I, I think this ability to start to uh, add a level of automation uh, without big expensive handheld scanners and so forth is is key. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So let's go back to the rule. One of the you know rules have deadlines. So uh, perhaps you can tell us about. The status of the rule and you know the, the the deadlines that are associated with it. Yeah, so the rule was finalized. The way rulemaking works in the United States is uh, the agency FDA will issue a proposed rule. We did that during my tenure in 2020. Um, we held public meetings to hear, well, you know, how we took a crack at the proposed rule. We considered that feedback, and then we issued a final rule in 22. 2022 in November 2022, uh, with a compliance date of January 2026. So, Steve, you're looking at it. It's July 2023. Uh, if there's anybody thinking about the rule and thinking, well, we have some time, uh, we really don't. Uh, January 2026 is right around the corner. I assure you, it'll be here at the blink of an eye. And so, if you're working in the food sector or you're working supporting the food sector, the time is now. You have to start paying attention to these rules and start making efforts to understand the rule, understand if there's any gaps, uh, what are the data standards that you need to implement. If you're already leveraging global, what I call consensus standards, such as the GS1 standards, you're well on the way. You're on the 90-yard line already, and GS1 has published some great documents on how to comply with Section 204. Uh, but you need to get started right now to, so that you can be compliant in January 2026 because it'll be here before you know it. And I'm chomping at the bit to get on some of the other topics, but I, I want to make sure that people understand this one up, one down thing. Because I think you, you talked about the fact that uh, one up, one down was not enough. And how does uh, um, uh, 204 go beyond that one up, one down um yeah, well, St Steve, I wish some of your listeners could have uh, been in the sessions that I've participated in where you have a national crisis, there's illnesses, deaths occurring because of a contaminated food product, 
and you're trying to trace that product back to source based on people are saying they're sick and we find out most of the people have been sick. There's a statistical association with a certain food product. Uh, when all that you had was the Biochosis Preparedness Act that said you must keep records one step up, one step down, and doesn't specify how you do that. You know, what we tend to receive is a lot of paper records. Believe it or not, uh, in this food system, a lot of the records were still being kept on paper, right? Uh, the rule doesn't require digital data, but I think that's the way people are going to comply. But when there's no specificity to the data attributes, you get packing slips and invoices None of them are standardized, and you have to try to connect the dots with this complicated supply chain that might be five layers deep. And so it takes a long time to try to piece that together. So what the rule did is we don't require that any one entity have full providence from farm to table, but we require that if you're a node in that food system or food continuum, you do your part. And by standardizing these key data elements, even if you keep track of it on paper, but increasingly we're seeing people are leveraging digital systems, it connects the dots, so to speak, more quickly, and you can trace it back to source. And so by every node doing their part and everybody speaking what I call by standardizing or harmonizing around key data elements, critical tracking events, we're requiring everybody, I like to use the analogy, to speak the same language of food traceability. And once we're speaking the same language, you can make those connections mass much faster. And what I'm seeing, Steve, is that people are saying, hey, the only way to really comply with this, and we're doing this in other sectors, right? You can track your luggage. You can track a package that you order on Amazon to your door. Um, using digital technologies, we're seeing that we're going from a time period of days or weeks to being able to track a food to origin in seconds. In fact, uh, some of your listeners will know the mango story because when I was working at Walmart, we started digitizing these food records. And I did a proof of concept in those days. This was back in 2017 or 16. I took a package of sliced mangoes, came into a Walmart staff meeting. I put the package in the center of the conference table in a conference room. And I told my team, tell me where those mangoes came from. Sliced mangoes. Steve, it took them six days, 18 hours, and 26 minutes because of this one step up, one step back traceability. Once you start connecting these dots the way I'm talking about now, and we did that, we could scan a package of mangoes and trace them back to source in 2.2 seconds. Amazing. It's what I call food traceability at the speed of thought. And so that's the future that we're going to see because of this rule. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so rule 204, essentially, you, you have 24 hours um, uh, within 
following a request to get a, a spreadsheet, which electronic can spreadsheet. be in any format. Yeah, yeah. which has that um, one up, one down, and it's the, this source ID, right, where the uh, the the origin was of the uh, of of the product. I imagine that there's a lot of CEOs of uh, food companies, whether it's uh, fast food restaurants or, uh, um, uh, or or supermarkets, that probably say we take food safety seriously. Uh, I remember writing a check for a whole bunch of systems. Um, we're probably compliant. Uh, what's your what's your sense of the state of readiness of the industry uh, today? Yeah, I think there's work to do. Uh, if if we thought there was large compliance without the rule, we wouldn't have needed the rule. We wouldn't have passed it. So I would say if there's a C out there thinking, "Hey, I'm already in compliance," uh, you need to you need to do uh, challenge test, if you will, for lack of a better term. Uh, the industry does a lot of recall readiness type exercises if they were going to ex- do a, uh, a recall executive th- and test whether they could do it or not. Uh, I'm advising organizations to say, uh, do a gap analysis against traceability. Get a product that you have or you produce and see if you could trace it back to source in hours or minutes. Um, and then you'll see whether you're in compliance or not. Uh, so my sense is there's work to do. I think they're capturing data. They might not be capturing it the way that the FDA is asking for it. I was at FDA, Steve. I'll tell you, when we wrote the rule, I was very aware of that there are some industry best practices, and the world is already moving this way for commerce purposes, right? We want to track and trace foods for the ability to do commerce in an effective and efficient means. And I didn't want FDA to write a rule that was absent or devoid of what's already happening in the marketplace. And so as we wrote the rule and we defined the key data elements, the critical tracking events, we did an exercise of bumping it or comparing it to these consensus standards, such as GS1 that I mentioned or PTI. Um, And so that's why I say, if you're already leveraging some of these global consensus standards for commerce reasons, you're probably going to be in pretty good shape. But if you're a food producer that is not already leveraging some of these consensus standards, you probably got quite a bit of work to do. Um, to be in compliance, so don't t- don't assume that you're in compliance. Would be my take-home message. So it's a matter of having um, using the right um, uh, data standards like GS1, having um, GTINs, and uh, yes. using their standards for uh, location, and making sure that your suppliers are talking the same language and getting the connections between them. So that's a ton of work. And then there's the whole question of Okay, I've got a, a, a this uh, unique ID, uh, this traceability lock code, um, but um, it's not just a matter of getting one and done. I get it from in some EDI uh, electronic document from a supplier. Um, they have to trace it, as I understand it, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. They have to track it when uh, the lock comes into the DC. And maybe that lot gets transformed, or maybe it uh, it, it then uh, potentially gets mixed with other lots. Uh, uh, if you've got a big DC, probably it's not just one lot of oranges that, that, of of lettuce that is uh, or spinach that's coming in. So you need the wherewithal to keep track of the lot code uh, among similar things, and then 
you fan out and go to different uh, supermarkets, say, and uh, you can't, as I understand it, it's not just a matter of, well, we think it went here. It's like you actually need to, to track it, to scan it. And then, you know, I think the whole supermarket industry was built with a different paradigm before Omnichannel, before COVID got us buying online and picking up in store and home deliveries. And they found that what you thought you got shipped isn't necessarily what you got shipped. You know, really as a company, our focus is like, we're like becoming laser focused on misshipments because, you know, with these ambient IoT pixels, these things look, looks a bit like it's a postage stamp thing. It's uh, talks Bluetooth to very low cost devices. You can immediately detect when there's a misshipment uh, without having to hire a ton of staff and, uh, and so forth. And so not using handheld readers. And so there's you know, much better compliance, but not a bunch of additional jobs, uh, no additional jobs uh, uh, being put in place. But you know, my understanding at least is that um, it's about automating the receiving as well as the dispatching of, of the goods to uh, ensure that you've got accuracy. Is that, is that fair? Obviously I'm biased because I work for a vendor of uh, technology. No, I think you have a really good understanding of the rule itself. And I, I think that last mile, if you will, going from DCs to retail stores and to food service is going to be a really challenge point in the rule itself um, because this type of record keeping hasn't taken place to this date. And I told you, it's largely the gap when there's illnesses. We will know they stopped, they shopped at a particular retailer. We'll know they've eaten at a particular chain. But not knowing with certainty what was shipped to those stores has been a problem for the past four and a half years I was in federal service. And what the retailers and food service or distributors will do, they'll give you guesstimates. They know what they've received into the DCs. They know their rate of turns. They won't have a record of what they shipped to those stores. So they'll tell you, we think we could have shipped these five lots during that time frame. And so there's there's not a lot of specificity. We know for any metric, you know, if, if you've taken statistics, these concepts of you've got to have precision and accuracy. And so what we want is precision and accuracy with what has been shipped. And so that's why I've uh, been pleased to start working as a strategic advisor with Williet because of these that stamp that stamp looking device that you just held up. If you can actually track with precision and accuracy what goes to a store. And I think the type of technology with IoT pixels, uh, the reason I think it's such a game changer is you can then track that using what I call a low labor model. Because none of the food service companies and the retail companies want to be scanning a lot of cases, right? Um, so if you can capture that data without batteries and in a low labor model fashion, that's the game changer. And not only that, Steve, we haven't even touched on that, but not only will you be tracking the product, remember I said it's not only about track and trace, but it's about monitoring. Well, you could start overlaying some additional functionality such as temperature, for example, and you can move from a first in, first out to first expired, first out and reduce food waste. And uh, while I was the deputy commissioner for food policy, food safety and response, uh, I'm a firm believer, uh, because of my 30 years in the private sector, that the real benefit here, um, while there's a food safety benefit, I did, I, I led the cost-benefit analysis to the rule. 
your audience needs to know if you're going to do a rule in the United States, you just can't come up with this rule and say, we're going to implement it and cause the regulated industries to comply with it. You got to do a cost benefit analysis and stakeholders have to react and Congress has to react. And there's a cost benefit uh, analysis done for the food traceability rule. And there's a return on investment just on preventing illnesses. But the real benefit is going to be all of the other benefits that we're going to derive. You'll be able to do food safety in a more compliant and more efficient manager, manner and reduce cost. You're going to reduce food waste, which is a significant cost to society. A third of all food that gets produced gets wasted. Food fraud, you know, economically motivated adulteration. You know, we talked about there's more organic food sold in the world than is produced in the world. By creating this level of transparency, you'll remove that type of unscrupulous behavior. Um, and so there, it, sustainability. I mean, we can go on and on. Really, the benefits in time will be measured. And we'll, be look, we'll look back, Steve, 10 years from now and say, oh, wow. Food traceability was, I, I use the analogy of pouring the concrete for the interstate highway system. And all the other benefits that you'll derive from this using IoT, ambient IoT type of technology, and other technologies is going to be a real game changer, quite frankly, needed for food. Uh, like I said at the beginning, there's not too many topics that are more important to food to society. Well, I think it's so I, uh, I realize time's got away from us. And we do have, fortunately, there's going to be a, uh, we have a webinar coming up uh, with Food Safety Magazine where we get to kind of uh, present this in a more um, uh, a structured way, cover some s slightly different aspects of the uh, uh, of, of the topic. But I do want to talk to you about you know how this is going to play out, and I'd like to offer my own prediction, which is I I think it's actually going to be uh, the the larger, um, more technologically savvy uh, uh, retailers, and it's not always the large ones that are, but you know there's some very notable ones that you're. We're all very familiar with uh, have incredible uh, technical uh, capacity in driving for adherence, and they know that they they can't just scrape by with a C minus. They 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 have to do this properly. Um, uh, I think when they do that, they have the opportunity to to go from being perceived as the value player to also being uh, the quality player. If you suddenly get this ability to see the cold chain of your uh, of your perishable products, if you can go to um, ripest first um, with the the data that you have, uh, and you can start to open up that data chain to consumers, and they can see the story of their food, then it may not be oh I go to this merchant because the you know. The prices are low, and this merchant because uh, of the quality of the product. I think those actually technology could bring those two things together. But I'm interested in your sense of how this is going to play out, and specifically, inevitably, when you've got the you've got the January the twentieth, twenty twenty six deadline, the rules already finalized, uh, the starting guns already been fired. Do you think the industry is going to be ready on time? I guess that's probably the biggest question. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I get that question a lot and people will say, well, should we be, well, should we be serious about January, 2026? And the answer is yes, you should be very serious about it because it's the final rule on a compliance date. Uh, if you look at what happened with 
the Drug Supply Chain and the Drug Supply Chain Security Act. Um, it took them a long time to get that one done. It's been in the making for about a decade. I was involved, Steve. I was there within FDA talking uh, with all of the branches of government that were involved with this compliance dates. And we were all very committed and intentional to the January 26th date. Uh, you know, you, sh- you would be naive if you're listening to this and not think that there were conversations to say, do we make it more aggressive? Yeah, there were conversations about that. And there were conversations about, do you push it up? But I would say on balance, the tone of those conversations was nothing less than 2026 uh, and maybe even some considerations of going faster because I think we're at a very different place. So your audience should assume that the 2026 date is going to stick and they should try to stick it. Um, and get on the journey. I think, you know, we're at a different place in society. We have the tools available. We're talking about ambient IoT. We're talking about, you know, these uh, stamp-like sensor devices uh, that are available for a fraction of what they cost years ago. Uh, I think all the tools are there to comply. Uh, it's just getting started now for large organizations, you know, moving the inertia and do it. I My sense is what's going to happen is Companies are going to figure out how to comply in a way that's beyond what I call mere regulatory compliance. Right now, people are just thinking, okay, how do I comply with Section 204? I don't think it's going to be long. I think there's going to be a couple of use cases early on, and people are going to say, wow, the benefits of doing this far exceeded just complying with Section 204, and now look at what I've been able to done, be able to do. I'll give you one example. Those sliced mangoes that I told you about, when you can optimize the flow of those sliced mangoes from small uh, and medium growers in Central and South America, those mangoes that have to get to the U.S., cross the U.S. customs border, they then go to a processing facility in the U.S. where they wash, peel them, and spice them, then they go to 6,000 retail outlets across the nation. While it's not a high volume skew, there was a lot of food waste or shrink in those stores because of that one. And you just optimize that supply chain just a little bit with the insights that we're talking about that you can capture here with this type of ambient IoT technology and temperatures. Um, you just pull one day of uh, distribution out of the continuum and give that day back to the consumer. You reduce shrink in retail stores to the tune of tens of millions of dollars consumers get a fresher mango product and they're happier. Guess what else you could do, Steve? If you purchase sliced mangoes, I like mangoes. My mom was from Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) If you notice, they're usually a little bit hard. Why is that? I'd love to know. Because they slice them when they're not perfectly ripe because they're afraid of those products getting wasted. But when you have more confidence in your ability to master that supply chain, you can offer a better quality product the consumer. And I think that that's an opportunity to change market share. I, I really yeah. do, because I will drive a long way to get a good mango uh, or tomatoes that, that, that taste good. Um, yeah. And so I, th- I think if this wave of automation that comes in that's driven by compliance, I think it'll be a competitive weapon that's used uh, and it will enable uh, people to 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 gain share uh, because uh, uh, you know if word gets round <laughs> this is where you go for the best tasting food then uh, then then people will move who they uh, shop with and uh, uh, you know hey Steve one other comment you know we could go on for hours here but 
to me, it goes even beyond this because we're talking so much about tracking and tracing. We're talking about monitoring, but it really all then becomes data, right? Capturing data at every node of the food system about how food is being produced, how it's being handled, how it's being maintained. And, you know, I, I've been quoted as saying better food safety begins and ends with data. Better food safety or better food quality begins and ends with better data. Better food sustainability begins and ends with data. Our ability to feed 9.57, 10 billion people begins with better data. Our ability to deal with climate change begins with better data. And so it really is about creating a smarter, more resilient food system. And so I think this goes, all the benefits that we've talked about are there, Steve, but I think it's an, it's almost an imperative for the future of food and society at large. So Frank, we're at the part of the show, it's actually my favorite part of the show, where we get to talk more about the the, the guests. And you know, we've been very uh, fortunate, especially fortunate in your case, of having some people that have really achieved some amazing things. And so I, I'm always fascinated about how they got to where they got to. So, you know, thinking back way, way early and into your childhood, um, would, would anyone have predicted that you ended up doing what you were doing? Were you like the class president or what was your childhood like? Yeah, I, I don't know that, uh, you know, the people that I hung out with and uh, went to school together with would have predicted that I would have ended up as a deputy commissioner at the Food and Drug Administration. But, you know, I think some of my foundation in terms of early youth was critical. I'm a strong believer, as you know, Steve, on the importance of behavioral psychology. And I do think our foundational years are, are critical in shaping who you become. So, you know, I was born in Manhattan uh, and then moved outside of the city. So uh, I'm a New Yorker by birth and still identify as a New Yorker. And uh, I was a second born. And so second borns tend to be a little bit competitive. I had an older brother. Uh, I was very interested in sports. So, you know, sports help you to understand, and especially team sports, uh, baseball and football, uh, you know, they help you become team players. And so I think, you know, a lot of those principles shaped who I am. Uh, my parents were uh, immigrants, so I'm a first-generation American. You know, I learned a lot about work ethic, uh, that you could do anything you want to in this great country. And uh, so I think those early foundational years shaped who I became. And uh, I look back now and you might say it wasn't a perfect trajectory to, to getting to becoming deputy commissioner on a large global scale in the U.S., but those principles, I think, certainly manifested themselves and were useful in uh, the work that I've done. It is interesting about how many of America's great achievers um, you know, have that strong uh, uh, origin story from uh, from somewhere else, and you can probably tell from my accent. I didn't grow up in in America, so I, it, for me, it feels like an incredible privilege to come from. You know, when I grew up um, in the seventies in England, I was always interested in technology. Ever since I saw two thousand and one, a space odyssey, and Hal did the tried to kill all the astronauts. I was like, I I uh, wanted to be part of that, and there was, you know. England has an amazing history in technology, but there's no question that where it's happening is in the United States. So to get to come here and to uh, be part of it is uh, so exciting. I think it's uh, a motivational force. So where did your parents come from? 
So my father was born in Greece on a small island on the west coast of Greece, the largest of three Ionian islands called Kefalonia. Um, he lived through World War II there, saw, you know, uh, occupation of the island that he was grew born on and, you know, tried right. to escape that in a better life and came to the U.S. And as you would imagine, came to New York, New York uh, at an early age, at, at the age of 18. And my mother is of Cuban descent. She was born in Havana, Cuba, and she escaped communism. And so, you know, it's interesting that you say that because we are a product of our background and how we were raised. But, you know, they came here to create a better life. And they just instilled in me and my brother the, the idea that, you know, this is a wonderful land of opportunity. You can do anything that you want, son. You have to go to school. You have to study hard. You have to work hard. But the opportunities are, are plenty. And so um, I still believe that to this day, but they certainly shaped who I and my brother became. Before the FDA, you have this amazing uh, resume of Disney and, and Walmart. How did you end up getting a, a, a job at, at Disney? That's like one of the, I don't know where their brand equity is, but it's got to be like in the top five. Pretty good, and, yeah. Uh, it really is a wonderful company. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, they've been in the news lately. All I can tell you is Disney is a fabulous organization. Uh, really, their attention to detail, quality, culture, show, uh, guest satisfaction, really just off the charts. But you know, what happened to me, Steve, I, I went to college in Central Florida, uh, University of Central Florida. I got my undergraduate degree in microbiology. I went on then to get a graduate degree in public health at the University of South Florida. But earlier in my career, I I, I did three stints. You know, when I first came out of college, I worked first and was a pharmaceutical company doing foods, not food safety, but quality assurance in the pharmaceutical industry. And it was really good because the pharmaceutical industry has very high standards, SOPs, validation studies. Uh, but I did that for a year and then that plant uh, closed their facility in central Florida and I uh, was offered to relocate, but chose not to. And so I went to my first food job, I worked as a quality assurance manager at an egg processing facility. We made pasteurized eggs. We took shell eggs, cracked them, obviously, in an automated fashion, and created pasteurized egg products, whole eggs, egg whites, egg yolks. Got my first taste of food, did that for a year. So this is two years out of college, and I said, well, I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life, and then went to a cosmetic manufacturer in Melbourne, Florida. I went on the coast of uh, thought that would be interesting. And so I've done, you know, a lot of different mediums here, food, pharmaceutical, and cosmetic. But I was working in this cosmetic manufacturer, Melbourne, Florida. And one day I was in the cafeteria. And back then we had the payphones on the wall. And the payphone rang. Uh, another employee picked it up and said, hey, there's a gentleman on this line looking for Frank Giannis. <laughs> it was a payphone. I don't know how this happened, how this fellow tracked this number down. But I picked up the phone and it was the college professor that I had worked for. Uh, it was really because of him, Dr. Rudy Wazinski, that I actually focused in microbiology. I got my degree in micro because of him. I consider him one of three life mentors. And uh, somehow he chased me down and uh, at a payphone in my employer's cafeteria. And he said, hey, Disney is looking for a food safety person to start up their first lab. They've been testing foods for a long time, but they want to do it in-house. And uh, he made the connection. And I went and interviewed at Disney and lo and behold, ended up getting the job, staying there for 20 years, moving up in the ranks. I eventually started their lab, oversaw the lab as it grew, then became uh, the manager over all food safety efforts, and then went on to oversee 
just about everything safety at Disney before I left there. I was overseeing occupational safety and health, guest safety. I was involved with attraction safety, food safety, and not only at the Walt Disney World Complex in Central Florida, but theme parks and resorts and cruise ships worldwide. And so it, it was a fabulous place. Uh, I like to say I got my business training. I got my my business MBA at the Disney theme parks and resorts Uh and then I got out into the real world after that. And I said, oh, they don't all operate like Disney. You know, so Disney was fabulous. And I went on, as you know, to work at the world's largest retailer, which was also a wonderful experience. Walmart, you know, one out of every $4 spent on food approximately uh, in the U.S. is spent at a Walmart store. So big impact on the large scale of the food system. But I like to joke that I went from the happiest place on earth to the busiest place on earth, Walmart. Uh, and, and that was a good run. But you had to solve problems differently at Walmart. You had to solve them at scale. So really simplify and try to automate. Disney could rely on culture. And then thereafter that, Steve, uh, I got called in 2018 after a decade as a uh, global vice president of food safety at Walmart. Uh, uh, I got a call by uh, Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, who was a bit of a celebrity commissioner at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And uh, he said, hey, uh, I, I've just joined uh, federal service and I'm looking for somebody to head up our food safety efforts. And I did the transition from the private to public sector. So I said, I went from the happiest place on earth to the busiest place on earth to one of the most important regulatory agencies on earth. So it's been a great run. But Steve, I think the bottom line is, you know, every opportunity has been wonderful. Uh, I like to say I probably learned more than I taught in each of those organizations. They were brilliant. Uh, but it's really been a, a great run and what an honor to serve the American public uh, during the last four and a half years as deputy commissioner for the USFDA. And and you worked across multiple administrations, didn't you? Yeah. One of the things I wanted to do was to show that food safety is not a political issue and it's not a partisan issue. So I worked uh, under the last two administrations, two years uh, under a Republican administration and two years in a Democratic administration. And I like to say, Steve, you know, the pathogens in the food supply don't recognize political parties. So when it comes to food safety, neither should we. Yeah. And uh, I intentionally wanted to do that to send a lousy message that we, we can't approach this topic uh, with a partisan mindset. Now, the good news is, you know, I've worked with uh, politicians in both the uh, the Senate and the House. And, uh, you know, I think they, they get that, that, you know, this is a pretty divided country sometimes. Societies, not only in the U.S., around the world are polarized. Uh, but if there's one area that's really important for society at large and we shouldn't polarize it is uh, food and food safety. You know, there's not a lot of topics, in my view, that are more important than food. And this intersection between food and technology is critical as you think about the challenges that lie ahead, you know, feeding nine billion people, reducing food waste, making sure that it's safe, the effects of climate change. So... One of the, there's so many interesting threads that cross these three huge uh, pillars uh, in your uh, career. But one of the things that just occurred to me, um, and maybe it's obvious, is that Disney kind of runs cities, doesn't it? Those cruise ships are like a city. The the I think technically in Orlando it is a city. You know, they have governance and uh, everything about a city. So. Was that, to what extent was that helpful when you went to the FDA? And to what extent was it like jarring? Because obviously as a private, uh, as, a, as a company, they can maybe uh, control more than, uh, than in a democracy. 
No, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I remember being in a house hearing, you know, and when you work at the heights of federal government, you get called in front of uh, Congress sometimes to participate in hearings. And uh, rightfully so, you know, our elect politicians have questions of the agencies. And if you're working in a federal agency and you get called by Congress to testify, you know, I, I don't think it's a choice. I think it's an obligation. Sometimes federal officials want to kind of push and say, no, I, I'm not, I'm busy. I can't come. I always considered it an honor that our elected politicians, but I was asked those questions. What did you learn at Disney or what did you learn at Walmart that are relevant to the work at FDA? And I would say I learned a lot, uh, but Disney is in essence a city. And I used to say I was basically running public health for Disney. You know, you think about the Walt Disney World complex in central Florida with four theme parks with cruise ships that operate at a, the, the coastline with, you know, dozens of resorts, visitors, there's millions of people. And so the job is to try to keep millions of people safe on a daily basis, whether it's from food or the water attractions or the attractions that they ride on or, you know, curbs that they can tr trip on. So, um, you know, it's, in that respect, you know, you get a strong flavor for public health. Now, the thing when you do it at Disney and in the private sector, they're so good at all that they do. I mean, the attention to detail from designing those theme parks and resorts in a safe manner to an organizational culture where, you know, at that time when I worked there, Steve, there were about 55,000 cast members. We didn't call ourselves employees because we were all part of a show. Uh, and now I think they're up for about 70,000 there. Uh, but a lot of those principles uh, I brought over to me, obviously, in my career, not only to Walmart, to FDA, I would say probably the biggest thing I learned at Disney was uh, attention to detail and the importance of organizational culture. And so, you know, at, and FDA, the details matter, you know, a couple of degrees means the difference between a product being safe or unsafe. This is amazing. Uh, and so details matter. And then organizational culture you know, I went on to write a book called Food Safety Culture in 2009, and it was really a model that I used at Disney and the principles that I learned at Disney, which is you can design and build the most wonderful attractions in the world. You can write the best food safety programs, laws, or rules in the world, but if you can't get people to do them, they're absolutely useless. And so not only do we have to master what I call the food science, not only do we want to leverage technology but you have to understand something about human behavior and organizational dynamics and how groups of people work. And so, yeah, I, I, everything that I've done uh, in my career was super useful in my time in federal service. I, I think it's great that you focused on culture and I'm fortunate in the past, I've worked at some companies that had amazing cultures and I saw, I've seen the difference. You know, if you have a culture that it's not aligned, then uh, um, it, it's it's a problem. But the flip side is, if you can kind of get that, uh, incubate that culture, and suddenly it becomes this explosive force, it's like you're getting, you're not just getting the nine to five or the eight to six or whatever it is, you're getting like 24 hour a day thoughts from people in the company, and yeah. the whole thing becomes a, a virtuous circle. So I think it's really interesting that you focused on that cultural aspect. Yeah, I agree. So um, hardest question of the interview, and uh, sometimes people who are not familiar with the show make <laughs> wonder at this, but uh, we have this tradition of asking all of our guests uh, for three songs that are meaningful to them. So I asked you that. I can't wait to hear what they are. And uh, 
So people can go back. We've interviewed like over 100 CEOs, people from Cisco and Google. So if you're ever interested in, in the music tastes of people in the Internet of Things uh, area, then uh, then you can just fast forward to the end of the Mr. Beacon show and hear them. But I'm very interested to hear um, your three songs. What, yeah. what are they, Frank? Steve, you know, I've done, since leaving federal service, I've done my share of podcasts. And uh, I'm a fan of your podcast, Mr. Beacon. I've listened to them. Uh, but I gotta tell you, this is probably the hardest question I've gotten since leaving. You know, I've been in front of Congress, had to testify in different formula and said, oh my goodness, how do I just pick three songs? You know, because there's, I'm a music fan. I love music. I think you gathered by my age a product of the 70s and 80s, and there's so many great songs. But I had to distill it down to three, which is hard. And I was a big fan growing up of the police. Absolutely loved the police. And so one of them that I picked is Synchronicity 2. And in particular, oh. a big fan of the police, went on to continue to be a big fan of Sting and saw him many times. Uh, but Synchronicity 2, I can remember, it must have been 1984, uh, attending my first police concert and being really right upstage with some friends and having a blast listening to the police and synchronicity too. So Amazing. A good choice, by the way. I'm there with you. <laughs> and uh, they're so interesting to talk to them. Um, uh, oh, gosh. I can't remember the name of the drummer, but he was on this uh, other podcast called Rock Hunters uh, and talked a lot about their evolution. So uh, I would check that out if you uh, have, a, have an interest. That's great. I'm glad that you approve. <laughs> <laughs> but now I have to go to the Americas, uh, the United States, and um, getting a flavor that I was a big fan of the late 70s and 80s. I, I also grew up loving and listening to Van Halen. And so in particular, the song Jump and uh the reason is uh, I, I toyed with playing guitar and electric guitar, guitar when I was a teenager. And, uh, you know, I still have a couple of guitars at home, don't have a lot of time for them. But in particular, the reason I picked that one, Steve, was Eddie Van Halen was really an amazing artist, a musician, and forced to be reckoned with on the music scene. And I can remember when I first heard his style of guitar, I was just blown away by it. And uh, believe it or not, it, it incentivized a guy that wanted to play electric guitar, rock and roll to start taking classical guitar lessons. And still one of my favorite guitars is my Yamaha acoustic guitar, classical guitar with nylon strings. And so um, Eddie Van Halen and, and Jump in particular, because it was such a fun and energetic song. It is a great song. I, I... I used to run the college radio station. I had a show, and whenever I wanted to put some energy into that show, this was in the early 80s, I would uh, I'd play that show. So I'm with you on that one as well. So what's your third? So the third one, I want to see with your wide music appetite if you'll recognize this band, but it was a Welsh band, uh, early 80s. I think they started off as a punk rock band, but went a little bit more rock, uh, and called The Alarm. I don't know if you're familiar with the alarm. I I I know I I'm not an expert on the alarm, but I'm definitely familiar with them. Yes. Yeah. So you have to go back and listen to some of their music. Oh. I mean, they. Oh. I remember seeing them. They opened up for U2, and I love U2 as well. But I had to pick the alarm. They used to open up from a few times, but they had one song called "Absolute Reality." Again, this had to be the early '80s. Absolute Reality, and the reason that song struck with me, I just like their style. Uh, if you like U2, maybe with a little bit harder edge, that was the alarm. And Absolute Reality, you know, at that time, uh, 
I was moving from a phase of just having fun in life uh, with my friends uh, to one where, you know, well, there's a lot of issues and problems in the world. And uh, that message or song really talked about the challenges that exist in society, regardless of where you're from, what socioeconomic stratosphere you're from, regardless of race, there's challenges, obviously, for many people that we all had an obligation to try to lean into these societal issues and try to fix them. So absolute reality by the alarm. If you never heard it, I would say get out there on your favorite search engine and check it out. It's a good one. Wonderful. I, I love it when I get homework uh, at the end <laughs> of the show, uh, and I will definitely be diligent and follow up on that. Frank, it has been a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the show. Thank, thank you very much for coming on the, the podcast. My pleasure, Steve. Like I said, a fan of uh, the work that you're doing, uh, the Mr. Beacon podcast, and uh, very importantly, the work that Willie is doing to create a smarter, more sustainable, and safer food system. So that was the conversation with Frank. Thanks so much for staying with us to the end. I want to thank Aaron Hammock for doing the editing. Thank you for doing the the listening or watching. And uh, just to let you know, if you had to put up with any ads, uh, then uh, whilst at Williot, I'm pledging to give 100% of that revenue to the uh, a, a local charity that uh, uh, looks after the education of uh, out of uh, homeless children. So it's called the Monarch School. If you want to find out more about them, then check them out on, on the web. And I encourage you to donate as well. Uh, until next time, stay safe, be happy. And uh, once again, thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.